Hey everyone, and welcome to the Body Positive Mum podcast. I'm your host Adele Johnston, and I really hope that you do take away some really awesome, super duper top tips from this podcast. That's what it's been designed for. If you do like it, please make sure that you give me some kind of thumbs up or subscribe just so that I can keep you up to date with any more content that comes your way. And have an awesome day. All right, so I'm going to introduce a very, very interesting guest speaker to this podcast. And it's one that you'll have seen that I've put out a lot of information on recently on the back end of a live seminar that I attended. So without further ado, I have the marvellous Sarah Fuller with me today. And Sarah is a registered dietitian and an advanced specialist in eating disorders in children and adolescents. So as most of you will know on the podcast that listen to it regularly, the podcast is really focused around childhood nutrition, family lifestyle, um, and all things that come with that. And, you know, unfortunately, on some of the sides of what we discuss, then eating disorders and disordered eating is something that we should be aware of and certainly be able to then tap into Sarah's expertise as an active member as well with CAMS Eating Disorders and with the registered um, charity, Eating Disorder Charity BEAT. So Sarah has a lot of really core skills as a registered dietitian and a lot of depth of knowledge around this topic. So I'm absolutely astonished that she even agreed to come on the podcast. So I feel very humbled. Um, and I first met Sarah when I attended the Mac Nutrition Collective Live Day, which was based around health at every age. That was in November. And Sarah covered off quite a lot of really hot topics around nutritional requirements for children and adolescents. And which one, one that really stood out for me was the fussy eating versus ARFIDs. So, or ARFID, this was one that really, really took my attention and I was just completely captivated the whole way through your piece, your, your event piece on this. Um, and for anybody that's listening, if you're not familiar with ARFID, Sarah will no doubt explain it as we go through because I do have some questions, but it translates into avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder. So just so that you kind of get the idea of the level of topic that we're going to discuss today. Um, and also Sarah covered off dieting language and um, restrictions in children and adolescents. So it's kind of everything. Um, as soon as I seen that Mac Nutrition had posted that Sarah was a guest speaker, I was right on there and booked my ticket straight off. So I had to be there. I had to come and see you do these PCs. And it's just meant now that I've got the opportunity to take some one-on-one -on -one time with you, which is awesome. So thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me, Adele. It's really nice. I've never done a podcast before, so this is a first <laughs> for me. So thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're very welcome. Honestly, it's all thanks is all on my side. Um, and really what I wanted to do, so if you've never done one of these before, there's probably quite a lot of different ways and methods that people will, will run their podcast. Um, for mine, Body Positive Mom has really run around it kind of fits into my life and almost, you know, I'm such a, I kind of cram everything into my weeks that I don't take time to really sit down and record these. I let the topics flow in the moment. I make it very conversational. And obviously with the, the difference with this one is I felt that it was far too important not to involve the listeners and where I've got, you know, a, a kind of population of people that are quite interactive with my social media and my podcast platform I needed them to be involved with this one just you know based around any perceptions they maybe had or questions as a parent that they have because a lot of my listeners are parents um okay. ranging <laughs> yeah ranging ages um, and obviously from my side as well you know I think when I thought when I, when I was planning out this one a little bit I kind of thought you know I'm I'm kind of split down the middle so I am um, the mum of and a mum of two nine-year-old girls oh wow so, you've got loads of free time then <laughs> very much yes so I've kind of got that hat on with this kind of discussion that we're going to have as a mum of girls who are effectively now starting 
to go through those changes in hormones and they're becoming a lot more body aware. Yeah. And also then the other side of my brain is the lifestyle mentor and coach for families uh-huh. with young children right up to teenage years, as well as working directly with mum. Okay. So it's kind of two hats for me with this one. Yeah. Um, so it's, it is very exciting. Excellent. So where did you want to start? So I think then, um, based on, I suppose, the introduction that I've given you, and uh-huh. I'm going to steal the kind of light on it for, for a moment just to get us off and started because I have had some questions come in, so I will make sure that we cover those off as well. Um, but for me, I think probably some of the bigger, more dominant topics right now um, is around the more, within your topic and, and within your expertise, around the eating disorder and disordered eating with the likes of... Uh-huh. And a big thing for me was the fussy eating versus ARFID. When yeah. You, when you covered off that topic at the MNU Live Day, I think it really sparked something for me to say that there's probably a lot of parents out there that purely, purely, and aren't aware of ARFID and purely just think that their children are just severely fussy or being naughty around mealtimes. Absolutely. And that's something that I see in clinic every week um i find mums and dads come to see us they get a referral from their gp they don't really know what our fit is mm-hmm. and then we start to explain it you can almost sense the relief in the family mm-hmm. that actually there's a reason why their son or daughter is acting the way that they are and it's not just being difficult or being really choosy because mm. um, ARFID um, so is something called Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder and it only technically became a diagnosis from 2013 mm. um, but in reality even when I was a paediatric dietitian before I moved to mental health I was seeing these kids in clinic and we, no one really knew what to do with them mm. <laughs> um, and you're only, some, you're only very lucky if you manage to get a multidisciplinary kind of approach because essentially ARFID is a feeding disturbance so it's not an eating disorder eating disorders are driven by weight and shape concerns I think that's really important to understand because most parents will still be referred to the eating disorders team because Mm -hmm. they're the most um, they're, they're the best place to help people with ARFID because of the multidisciplinary approach Um, So it's not an eating disorder driven by weight or shape concerns, but it is an eating or feeding disturbance um, that involves some children just either not being interested in food whatsoever, i.e. they could get up in the morning and go all day without food and just not really be bothered. And mums and dads are really anxious about the fact that their child's not eating. It's almost as if the appetite switch in the brain has just been switched off. Mm -hmm. Um, Or it can also include the avoidance of food based on sensory characteristics. So the taste, the texture, the smell, the colour, all of these things can combine so that ultimately at the severe end, maybe some young people only end up eating five white foods. But a lot of the families that I end up seeing are families that are worried that their child is just having a very limited amount, Mm. a very repetitive um, kind of food intake. And it's very, often very brand related. So if you go to McDonald's for your burger, um, other burger chains are available, (laughs) (laughs) um, then you know that regardless of whether it's in Scotland, England or Wales or Ireland, it's going to be pretty much the same. But if you're a mum and you're doing the real health thing and making homemade burgers or you've bought a different brand, it will literally be like a taste explosion for these young people. They're like, I can't eat that. That's different. Mm -hmm. And so you get from one side of the table, it's a burger. You have a burger every day. You can eat this burger versus this is horrific. This is not the same burger. Um, And also, ARFID could also be around the concerns of the consequences of eating. So some people might be really worried about being sick 
or choking on food. And this is usually after a kind of traumatic episode around either choking or being sick or seeing someone choke or seeing someone be sick. Um, so it's a real umbrella term. So it's not kind of one size fits all, um, which does make it harder to treat sometimes. Mm-hmm. But it means that unfortunately, children turn up in clinic and they can have significant weight loss. So they can, our offered patients can be more underweight than our anorexic patients because they don't have this driver of weight and shape concerns that parents are kind of a bit more tuned into saying Mm -hmm. this isn't normal um, and they just think their child's being really fussy Um, or they can have significant nutritional deficiencies um, and over the summer there was um, some media press around um, an adult who actually went blind because Mm -hmm. um, he didn't have enough of his... um, of certain uh, vitamins because he had ARFID and the GP had just quite relatively rightly said, well, as long as he's eating enough to maintain his weight and growth, then mm-hmm. that's okay. But in reality, he was still growing, but the um, quality of his diet was so poor that he actually went blind. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas also some of our young people are also dependent on being tube fed so artificially fed via um, a tube into the um, through their nose or into their tummy or reliant on um, sip feed so prescribed products mm-hmm. and usually with our food, there's a big interference with social functioning so our young people really struggle to socialize with food so they really they want to go to their friend's birthday party but they're terrified of the food that might be there so they kind of make excuses or they don't want to um, eat in certain environments because it's too overwhelming and things like that. So mm-hmm. ARFID can really, it's a really broad um, diagnosis, but actually it's um, very easy to unpick once you understand it a bit more. So, I mean, we could do a whole podcast just yeah, on ARFID. Yeah, I know, if, I know. If people want that, we could do that maybe at a later date. But it yeah. is, it's something that is just, um, it's always been there. But now that people are more aware of it mm-hmm. um, and the NHS has started to commission it slowly. I know mm-hmm. in England, um, my team is one of seven teams that have got um, funding for a trial on how to um, treat ARFID patients. Mm-hmm. And hopefully in the new year, that will be rolled out to the rest of um, NHS England. So I don't know what NHS Scotland are doing, I'm afraid, because no. <laughs> you're from the other side. Yeah. Um, but usually you know one country will lead and the others will follow so i'm very much hopeful that our young arford patients will be getting some form of treatment mm-hmm. soon because mm-hmm. at the moment it's unfunded so you get lots of people saying we can't treat that mm-hmm. yeah and it's it's really interesting you say that so I've, I've taken a big note and put a massive circle around it about nhs scotland arford and just to take that away and maybe speak to my GP and medical friends in the network to see do they know anything or can they find out. Um, yeah. But, but also then, I suppose just in that conversation, it's just sparked a few pieces that I have jotted down here as well because it was quite interesting um, where you've mentioned about ARFID and the kind of tendencies around how to potentially, as a parent, recognise it. Um, so I think you talked yeah. about, you know, it's it's not so much that they are just being difficult. It's that they'll express time and time again their dislike for something that's different in texture, different in feel, potentially different in colour. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they will recognise when if you try and fox your children by yeah. saying, oh, this is your exact brand of crisps that yes, like you always yeah. eat and put them... Um, put different crisps in the same packet they will be able to tell yeah because a lot of um, people with ARFID are actually what we call super tasters so they okay. can really like literally if one ingredient yeah is changed they will be able to tell and the distress that expecting something to taste one way and it actually tasting another mm-hmm. will be enough to put them off that food so lots of young people with ARFID will be very repetitive and consistent with their food so they may only have 20 foods that they eat or even less and actually mm-hmm. that will be very different from 
a toddler who mm-hmm. one day likes something mm-hmm. and will eat five <laughs> of them and then the next day just goes no I don't like that that's being a toddler yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the joys of having small children um, whereas uh, someone with Arthur would be saying slightly different things or say it doesn't taste right mm-hmm. or um, it looks funny or you know so the the sensory characteristics will be the kind of driver behind mm-hmm. why they don't want to eat it mm-hmm. or they're just not interested and they're like oh look something shiny and off they go right okay so that kind of distraction technique or, or something uh-huh. within that so and again you touched on yeah the, the very kind of media dominant topic where the young boy did go blind from arfid but they, they never explained that it was actually arfid that he had but I think then, uh-huh. I think what's quite interesting with that is, I suppose if we were to look at that now in hindsight, is there something that could have been done for him? So say you've got someone that's diagnosed in your 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 trials, they're diagnosed with ARFID, they're you know of a young kind of maybe eight nine years old or younger, uh-huh. I suppose. Uh-huh. what would be the kind of treatment to ensure that later in life that that doesn't become an outcome for them? given that they maybe yeah. don't eat a lot of vital nutrients, minerals, you know, vitamins within the foods that they're consuming? Okay, yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question. So what you'd want is you definitely want a referral to a either a CAMS dietitian or a paediatric dietitian or just a dietitian in general. Yeah. Any, any dietitian will do. <laughs> and you will get a full nutritional assessment. So we'd usually ask families to bring a five-day or seven-day food diary so that we can plug it into a computer and analyse if someone's significantly um, deficient in any particular nutrients. And what we can then do is either um, try different ways of getting those nutrients in um, uh, through supplements, Mm -hmm. because some people are able to say, well, this is a medicine, so I'm going to have that. Mm -hmm. Um, Or they would be a, we would kind of potentially look at... um, getting a young person on the ward and having if they're really driven by sen- uh, sensory characteristics of food and mm-hmm. it was just impossible and we tried various supplements or um, uh, nutrition drinks and things like that um, we could potentially look at the um, going down a very medical route of kind of IV nutrition okay um, but just having almost kind of like having regular top ups mm-hmm. on the wards um, so that they never become deficient mm-hmm. and any deficiencies are corrected. Mm-hmm. So if someone, if a diet, if a um, patient came to me and I was very worried, I put all the um, their kind of diet history into uh, nutrient and soft, um, analysis software. I would then refer to a pediatrician saying, "I'm very worried about A, B, and C. Please, can you do <clears throat> the correct bloods just to reassure me that this is either okay or not okay?" Because then you know. You can quantify when you need to do something Mm -hmm. Um, because uh, you know despite Arthur being very consistent sometimes you know in the summer you eat some foods and not in the winter etc etc so you do need to kind of be a bit more holistic around um, the kind of the overall diet but I would definitely be linking in with a paediatrician who can do bloods and to facilitate an admission if mm-hmm. needed because that's all this young boy this young lad mm-hmm. needed was mm-hmm. someone to say you either need to have these drinks mm-hmm. which he's now drinking mm-hmm. um, or um, because that would be enough to just meet his lower reference nutrient intake to prevent deficiency yeah um, but uh, or get him on the ward a couple of times and mm-hmm. just top him up that way, um, which would be a hell of a lot cheaper than supporting him for being blind, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so it's just kind of we're trying to work on how do we identify these young people, and that's yeah. part of this kind of trial project that we're doing. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Like you say, we could talk about it, talk about it forever, I think, just around you know uh-huh. where it can then lead to and... You know, another point that kind of sprung to my mind when you were talking about just the characteristics and the, the kind of lifestyle choices that an ARFID person will make. Um, have you come across or have you experienced in your clinics or, you know, any of your your, your patients that it, many of them have got, I suppose, characteristics of autism or 
any other type of link to Asperger, something along those lines that it becomes almost part of that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, so not all children with ARFID, because if you've had a um, choking incident or vomiting incident and you have a fear mm-hmm. of um, choking and vomiting as a result, um, that's, that's is just potluck as to whether you have one of those episodes or not. Yeah. Um, but some of our young people do are very much either have a diagnosis or um, are being investigated for or Mm -hmm. the parents would say yes they're a very precise individual um, and so you can kind of understand that um, you know if someone is on the autistic spectrum they might be more sensitive to sounds lights and therefore taste Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's where this kind of super tasting hypersensitivity to taste um, uh, can come into play but not all children Mm -hmm. and young people or adults with ARFID are Mm -hmm. on the spectrum it's a proportion of them Mm -hmm. yeah no thank you it was just again like I say something that kind of popped into my mind as we were chatting through um and I suppose then as well just looking at a lot of the questions so I've I've got the questions that were sent through to me because I want to make sure that those that have sent them in I'm able to get them some kind of output and and answers to Uh them without making this a Q&A. So I don't want to just be blasting questions yeah. to you. I want, I want it yeah. to be more of a conversation. Um, Before you move on, yeah. I can also um, uh, send you some links to books that would be really good to... So if you've got people saying, I think my child's got offered, what do I do? Yeah, there excellent. are some really good books um, that are kind of like mm. almost self-help books as well um, mm. and just get parents understanding off it a bit more so I can send you links to that that those. would be excellent yeah thank you absolutely and I think yeah. this is it anything that you know I can do to even just give them a bit of support on in terms of where they need yeah. to go and, and what they can do if they suspect it uh-huh. then at least it gives uh-huh. them yeah, the I know absolutely. now where to get help mm-hmm yeah sometimes we just i mean we literally got parents buying the books off amazon um (laughs) from their phones in the clinic Mm -hmm. and they come back going this is our child to the letter right um so that it's really helpful so i can signpost you to those that would be excellent thank you i do appreciate that um and then so some of the questions that i've had come through um i suppose in a way might be linked around the wider piece around disordered eating and eating disorders but moving away then from that more fussy eating versus arfid topic um is is looking more around um items such as an eating disorders classified such as anorexia so uh-huh. I've had a couple of questions specifically come in about this. And what I've done is I've kind of bunched them together into one core topic. Um, uh-huh. Just so that we can maybe open up that conversation a bit more around this. But the main elements would be that we've got a kind of young person presenting at their kind of early teen stage. And uh-huh. this, this young person um, is going through the kind of early stages of a diagnosis. So with anorexia. they're entering into that supportive system at say around maybe 13 14 years old and they'll be treated um so i suppose from your point of view you would start to see this individual you would take them through your cares and to a point Uh where they reach around the age of 18 if that's correct Uh Yes, yeah, so the um, the evidence base for um, eating disorders, especially ones restrictive eating disorders like anorexia nervosa, mm-hmm. um, uh, we know that family-based interventions are twice as successful as individual-based interventions. So um, the, uh, the NHS has essentially commissioned family-based treatments with individual-based treatments kind of as an adjunct and a little add-on. Um, or, you know, if this isn't working, we can try something else. So most family-based treatments, you would expect a positive outcome within a year. Okay. So weight restoration um, and be looking towards discharge. So a loss of our families needs six to 12 months. Some need a little bit more, some need a little bit less. Um, but everyone's different. And so that's not just saying that there's a magical wand and families mm-hmm. can go and feed their children, because if it was that simple, yeah. our specialist teams wouldn't exist. 
Um, but the, then we would start looking at doing kind of adding on individual therapies that were evidence based, such as CBTE, mm-hmm. an enhanced version of CBT around eating disorders, okay. um, or adolescent focused therapy around eating disorders. Um, so there are lots of kind of bespoke models that are out there. And often some people need a bit of a scattergun approach, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know, we're not all one size fits all. Mm-hmm. Um, and if someone's been ill enough to require inpatient admission then you know you're not going to be done and dusted in six months Mm -hmm. um so it will take a bit longer but i suppose transition to adult services is something that parents are absolutely terrified of because Mm -hmm. they find cams very supportive um you know they've had weekly appointments and suddenly they go on a waiting list and they're Mm -hmm. like this is not what we got used to yeah um and there's lots of um, usually so good practice within the NHS. You'd start planning transitions at least nine months before they turn eighteen. Okay. And a lot of eating disorder services are becoming all age, so there's no kind of like hurdle at eighteen. Or some of them go up to twenty five, that sort of thing. So it's okay. not like this cliff edge that it used to be. In some mm-hmm. areas, it is. In others, not so. So it, there is a there is varied practice across the UK um, but I suppose there's a lot I would imagine that if someone had been diagnosed in their teenage years um, it would be less of a worry turning 18 mm-hmm. because you should be well and truly kind of mm-hmm. cooking on gas really mm-hmm. you know hope, hoping that things were going well by then mm-hmm. um, but obviously that won't be the case for everyone. Um, there are lots of really good um, beats, the Eating Disorders Charity. Yeah. They do um, a fantastic um, uh, peer mentoring scheme called Echo, where parents who've been there, done that, got the T-shirt, okay. are trained to support other parents here at the very beginnings of it. Um, and it's the kind of, if only, you know, mm-hmm. please learn the lessons we learnt. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. learn them the hard way. We want to pass on and help you. So Beat do that, and that's fantastic. Um, there's also a lot of absolutely brilliant kind of um, para- expert parent books and... Um, resources that are available online and things like that that help um, family support their child Mm -hmm. so there's a huge amount of stuff that's out there um, available for parents and for families um, to kind of give themselves tools to help manage the transition as well because I suppose if you go from a family-based treatment to an individual-based treatment sometimes the parents can feel a little bit left out yeah you know, as soon as you hit 18, someone's going, well, you've got to do it now. And, mm-hmm. you know, two weeks ago, your mum was doing everything for you. Mm-hmm. So you can feel very mm-hmm. different. Um, so kind of skilling the parents up to manage that transition and mm-hmm. actually to be having those conversations around it from the age of around 17, mm-hmm. that's really important. Mm-hmm. No, I think, and I think it was a very value, valuable and value-add question that came through because, um, you know, I... I I'm very fortunate that I've not experienced firsthand with either myself or anybody in direct relation in my family that has suffered from or still experiences um, any type of eating disorder. But I think then having looked outside my circle, there are individuals that I know that still have that daily struggle and some days are great Mm -hmm. and other days are not. And, you know, these Uh individuals vary now. They've gone through their teen years. They've gone through, you know, they have children of their own. And what I'm starting Uh to see happen with those particular individuals is that their, almost their language and their tone towards foods, their reactions towards foods. And, you know, children pick up on these things. They're very clever little cookies. And, you know, Uh they're, they're really in tune at such a young age, and you know, okay. this is something I've covered in many um, episodes before, that children learn through watching, listening, yeah. trying, doing. This is how, you know, when you look at a baby when it first starts to try and toddle along or stand, you know, they'll fall so many times, but they continue to keep going with the encouragement that they receive. 
to master it. But I think that, so the point I'm making on this is as a, a parent, as that mother figure, the child will experience the anxiety around those food relationships and, you know, the experience. So have you got any direct, you know, I suppose, involvement with that level of support where you, you've had to give? I know that you specialise more in that childhood and adolescent side, but in your previous life of, of kind of a, a, a dietitian side, have you had any involvement with mums, I suppose, that are maybe concerned or, or is there groups that you know of that support mums that still potentially suffer with that level of eating disorder? So I think, yeah, I have had lots of um, experience. Um, and just one thing that I would want to reassure people is if you have had an eating disorder, it does not mean that your children will definitely have one. Yeah. That's just something you just, it's not a life sentence that you're passing from one generation to the next. And there's a huge amount of help out there. Um, and even for adults who have, are maybe not physically compromised, not significantly underweight, but kind of functioning with their eating disorder, you can still get, there's a lot of help out there in the kind of um, beat. Again, they do um, web taps and, and forums. Um, there's lots of kind of uh, tier two services that will be able to, that will take people who are not kind of critically underweight um, and be able to support families mm -hmm. because eating disorders don't, they don't come in one size. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can be um, a, it's not related to your weight. Um, however, specialist service often have to have a threshold and talking about weight in relation to risk and mm -hmm. things like that and mm -hmm. making sure that people stay alive. Yep. So um, sometimes you can have, play this little dance between which team you belong to mm -hmm. um, and eventually end up in one team or another. Mm -hmm. um, but there's lots of resource, um, resources out there and self-help books and things like that. But I do think language is really important. Mm. Um, you know, if kids see parents standing on scales regularly and having conversations around weight, mm -hmm. they're going to pick up that weight's important. And if you're quite a precise young person who doesn't like change, and as you grow, your weight will go up because mm -hmm. you grow taller and you go through puberty that can become quite distressing and you can become quite fixated on that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that could be a kind of foot in for the door for an eating disorder potentially, but also um, the language around good foods and bad foods. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a dietitian and, and <laughs> breaking news. I like cake. It's lovely. Especially <laughs> chocolate cake on a bad day. Yeah. Um, and lots of people think I should be, super healthy and not having any of these foods and I'm like no like there's a real nutritional value of food as one aspect of food mm -hmm. um, food can give you comfort food is social um, and uh, you know yes if I had cake every day I probably wouldn't be as a healthy balanced diet as I could have but it's not that I don't have cake and I think it's really important that families don't have good and bad foods you can have um, social foods that mm -hmm. are perhaps more of a treat like cake birthday cake Christmas yeah. cake um, you know those sorts of things um, but you know making sure that there's a balance around it not being very clear that there's no such thing as a bad food. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for someone who's very underweight, cake every day might be really important to help them gain weight. Um, and, you know, and if people are on eating disorder units, they would often have puddings every day and snacks every day in order to try and overcome some of the rules and fears that that eating disorder brings. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to not label things as good or bad, mm -hmm. but maybe perhaps every day in social, that would be more less triggering to someone who's vulnerable and developing a, a relationship with food. Yeah, no, I like that, every day in social, because I think that is something as well as... You know, it's, it's something that I'm very, very attuned to is not mm. using the likes of good, bad, whole health, you know, these types of things. Mm -hmm. You do get, obviously, you do, you know, you do get people who will say, I'm, I'm eating very clean just now. And, you know, I think it's just those terminologies um, can, like you say, lead to that. Well, that's better than that because that's clean and that's mm. not. 
Um, you know, I'm, I do I'm, always worry <coughs> when people are like eating clean, whether they're there with the domestics and putting before they eat it. <laughs> but it, it is there's so much. There's a lot of socially acceptable kind of trends around food at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, people um, cutting out gluten or wheat, um, cutting out dairy. Um, l- veganism those sorts of things and these socially acceptable ways of restricting your diet Mm -hmm. can lead to further restrictions later on Mm -hmm. if your intention for losing for changing your diet was to lose weight yeah Um, because it's yeah it's a great way to cut out the number of calories that you're eating Mm -hmm. is by cut out a whole food group Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of kind of concerns around socially acceptable restrictions going too far in some mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And if your sense of self is related to what you've eaten or what you've not eaten, I think you need to kind of really start to check in with yourself and make sure that you've got the balance right. Because yes, having a healthy balanced diet is important. Um, it's important to your long-term future health Um, but actually you know the genetics plays a huge role in this so you know you've always got someone who smokes 50 a day and is 100 living quite happily and someone who's never had a cigarette gets lung cancer at 40 you can't you Mm -hmm. can't always mitigate your genetics um, or experiences that happen to you you know making sure you have organic raw vegan food and going to the gym five days a week mm-hmm. does not mean that you're going to guarantee that you will not be hit by a bus the next day <laughs> um, and yeah. so sometimes I think people can put too much of an emphasis on food mm-hmm. um, as part of their daily life and yes certain um, medical diagnosis such as celiac disease certain allergies mean that you have to watch your diet in a very precise way for because otherwise you could become very ill um, but I think that's kind of drifted out into the high street a little bit and there's a lot more of this going on than there was a few years ago mm. yeah absolutely absolutely and yeah I'm nodding away through all of that because it's it's spot on definitely spot on but I I think it's that whole, you know, food is fuel for what our body and our our mind needs. This is what keeps us functioning. Um, And yes, it's all about choice and not having that guilt around the choices that you make. So yeah, I like that. Thank you. That was a really good explanation. Um, And I think if you are feeling guilty mm -hmm. around food, then you should maybe kind of have a little think about why that is because that's not a normal association with food. Mm. Usually food is either something that we do in routine. It's like, oh, it's 8 o'clock in the morning, I have to have my breakfast before I go to work, because otherwise I get really grumpy as soon as I turn up. (laughs) Or it can be something that's very social. Mm -hmm. But it's not something that if guilt is part of that, Mm -hmm. then that might be an indication that you might need to go and chat to someone and kind of talk these things through. Where's that come from? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's probably something that, if you're listening to this right now as one of the podcast listeners and you think Jesus you know that's me like I quite regularly experience guilt on a weekend because I'm quite restrictive through the week and you know I do go to the gym three or four times a week and I do restrict what I have Monday through Thursday or Monday through Friday but come the weekend I go out and and I socialize like crazy Uh and then the guilt hits you on that Sunday evening or that Monday morning, then if that is Uh you listening to that, then taking note of what Sarah's saying, that, you know, we're we're not saying you're abnormal, we're not saying that that's not Uh a normal way to to kind of think, but I think that when we look at what our body needs to function, you've just had a really awesome sociable fueling session, so Uh over that weekend... And think of all the fun times you've had, the people you've spent it with, the experiences you've 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 made, the memories you've made, uh, and start that Monday afresh. But that could lead us into a topic of binge restrict. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and you can see how how vicious cycles start, and the idea of having to exercise to burn off kind of what you did at the weekend and body. Exercise should be fun. If you're going to the gym, feeling tired, thinking I don't want to be here, but I have to be here, 
that again is not the right relationship that you want you want to be going to the gym because you want to see your friends and have a chat and actually from an eating disorders team we really recommend exercise as something that's really positive to recovery Mm -hmm. but we recommend social exercise so playing football playing Mm -hmm. netball playing hockey Mm -hmm. Something where there's a clearly defined beginning and end, so you just don't keep going. If you're a runner, no one will stop you doing that extra mile, um, even when everything hurts and it's cold and it's wet and it's windy. Um, So having social exercise is really important. Going running with a friend Mm -hmm. and chatting the whole way around Mm -hmm. at a slightly slower pace, because you can chat, (laughs) um, means that you'll probably have a lot more fun um and you can still cover the same distance it might take you a little bit longer and you might get lost because you've been nattering to your friend but that's a lot more positive for your kind of mental health that side of things so doing things on your own Mm -hmm. can be quite punishing um doing things that are kind of linked with how many calories I've eaten or need to burn off before I do this, this or this, that Mm. can be quite punishing and can get you quite stuck in a rut. Mm -hmm. So my advice is always to try and be a bit more sociable with those things. And it's not going to be a magical quick fix of everyone just go and take up Zumba and you'll all be fine. (laughs) It's not that, but it's kind of trying to get that balance Mm -hmm. around if you only run five days a week, maybe you need to do a yoga class and you know some kind of a cardio class that is you know with other people that you can chat to and you know there's like more fun music and things like that rather than kind of just running on your own those sorts of things it's, it's all about balance yeah yeah absolutely spot on um and I suppose then what this has kind of triggered on my tip of my tongue to ask the question of recently across media so media have got a hell of a lot to to um explain themselves for have come forward around the advances to food labeling on products yes so, oh my word this is giving me nightmares yeah, so, already well this was my question so what you've everything we've just chatted about there and what you've just given the kind of advice on you know your expertise and your opinion on is again anybody within this kind of side of the background and, and kind of into that dietetics and nutrition I bet are having complete nightmares around the fact that this is potentially or looks like is going to happen and you know we're talking about again the demonization around certain foods where they will no doubt be putting tub of Ben and Jerry's a bag of Doritos these are all the types of things that they've been putting out as images for it will take you x amount of um, you know minutes running I think it was something like 45 minutes running for a hundred mil of ice cream mm. in order to burn that off um, what is your opinion on how with everything that we've talked about from the start of this podcast topic yeah. is this going to be damaging so I think it's really hard to come across with like one headline statement so Obviously, the people who've come up with this have thought it through in in their, mm. you know, they haven't just gone, oh, let's just give this a go and throw that as a <laughs> no. public health yeah. kind of strategy. So I think it's meant with good intentions. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that a lot of public health um, strategies will trigger some people um, into their eating disorder. Even the National Child Measuring Programme. Mm-hmm. Um, that has triggered probably at least 15% of our caseload have had the letter saying your child needs to lose weight, Um, please can you do something about it? And then healthy living spirals into florid anorexia and they can end up in a right pickle Mm. as a result. So, um, and when you look at people who are in the throes of anorexia they will say i can't have any foods that got a red label on you know it's another rule to follow Mm -hmm. um and i think when you speak to people with an eating disorder or who have recovered from an eating disorder they either say this will trigger me or this would have triggered me so you have to listen to that group of the population who said been there done that yeah i've never had an eating disorder um but i work with people who do and they they're just coming going have you seen the headlines and we all just go okay (laughs) Um, and i think a lot of really eminent psychiatrists will agree 
um, within the eating disorders profession that this is um, it's meant well because we mm-hmm. are in, a, in an obesity epidemic, um, but it needs to be managed in a way that um, isn't triggering to a large group of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, it might make the odd person. Um, think about the choice of snack that they're having, choose one over another. Um, but those kind of people would all already be in tune to nutrition and lifestyle and activity. Yeah. Um, and it's how do you get someone, Joe blogs on the high streets, to make slightly different choices. And actually, usually it's things like costs that drive the majority of people's yeah. choices. Yeah. Um, so it would be better. Lots of talks around this. I've seen people online just in you know twitter tears <laughs> around it um saying that it's really difficult but the reality is um it might come regardless mm-hmm. you know there are ha- higher beings than us and the bigger picture yeah. is around this but if you try something and it's not working it's important to stop it mm-hmm. so um if the public health gurus out there say, yeah, we're going to give this a go. If it's becoming more damaging, they mm-hmm. need to be able to say, let's not do it. If if the nation is not getting uh, mm-hmm. slimmer as yeah. their target, yeah. um, then <clears throat> and more people are presenting to eating disorder services and more harm is being done than good, then it needs to be rethought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wonder then, so it's, it's just an interesting piece, and this is not for you to answer as such, it's more just a bit of a conversation, but I wonder if whether then government level-wise, will they have it in tune to the likes of even BEAT and CAMS, and you know, will they even look at the additions and the, the percentage increase or decrease in referrals through the likes of yourselves yeah. as part of their overall statistical review? Well, they should do. Um, and one of my many jobs is I'm a clinical advisor to BEAT, mm-hmm. the eating disorders charity. And three times a year, um, a lot of clinicians, psychologists, psychiatrists, occupational therapists, nurses, dietitians, yeah. we all meet together in London or Skype in if you live too far <laughs> away. And um, they have uh, people who write position statements on these types of policies and we're Mm -hmm. asked to contribute from our own kind of expertise and if we're aware of any research and things like that then beat will actively um you know they will go to westminster and kind of lobby for change and they've got mps who have had family members with eating disorders or mm-hmm. they've had an eating disorder themselves and they are kind of you know a voice for beat on that within Westminster mm-hmm. um and I know they have the equivalent kind of ambassadors in Scotland and then for the Welsh government yeah. as well it's not just England centric and London centric yeah. um it's very important <laughs> um but the reality is, you know, there is a lot of these, uh, a lot of people trying to provide a sense of balance around mm-hmm. these sort, these ideas, and mm-hmm. it, you know, there's a lot of hoops to jump through to develop a new public health strategy, and they all go out to consultation, and this is in the important bit that, mm-hmm. you know, clinicians have the opportunity to say mm-hmm. we think this will be damaging because of a b and c and here's the evidence yeah and then yeah. it's up to someone else who's impartial to weigh up all mm-hmm. of that mm-hmm. and see if it's a good idea yeah i mean I, I, it's one of these things where i completely appreciate that we are in you know obesity period but childhood obesity being at its all-time highest and the projections for where that's going to go just in the next 10 years is just really worrying and Uh you know it's something that you can visibly see so you Uh know even at my children's primary school my girls are in a primary five level and it's something that I'm very attuned to with my eyes I'm able to see myself um and it's just yeah it's just you can see it so I think Uh it's just it's, it's appreciated that they are looking discussing trying to resolve a, an ongoing problem and challenge for a nation um mm. but yeah it's just it's interesting because i think there it has caused a lot of divide um, mm. and certainly from the network of people that i have that i follow and that i engage with 
it's been more of a negative than a positive mm. outcome mm. or perception. But also, there was a very similar kind of outcry when we started putting kind of red, amber, green labels yeah. on food yeah. and things like that. And that people are more kind of okay with that now. Yeah. So it's there just is a changed, bit of we don't though, like isn't change. it? I think that humans, in, you know, instinctively, a lot of humans are pretty much adverse to change. It frightens them. They don't know what it's going to mean. And until it's in play, then, you know, they can't appreciate what it will bring. But, you know, it's one of these things, I think, if we're open-minded to it, it might do something. But I'm more on the side of, I don't see it adding a lot of value. I see it bringing more psychological damage than it will on a a physical um, positive. But that's just yeah. my own perception. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, food labelling. Interesting one. Um, and I suppose then, that, so we've pretty much, through conversation, covered a lot of the questions that came through. Okay. Um, uh-huh. the, the kind of only one that I've got sitting here that's outstanding, and I am so aware of your time. So if you've got sure. time to answer this one, then it would mean that we've got a full house. And uh-huh. I can go back to everyone that put questions through and let them know. Um, but the main the main outstanding topic then was around with your experience over the years because you have had a lot of of experience in the dietetics world, um, pediatrics, and also now looking at that more kind of ARFID adolescent disordered eating eating disorders. If that's uh-huh. the if that's a, quite an apt way yeah. of putting it. Um, but what I've got an interest in here that's come through in a, in a question has been around do you currently see people or young adolescents just now that veer into nutritional focused study or careers after treatment yeah absolutely and it's not saying that every nutritionist or dietitian has had an eating disorder or you know a struggle there will always be a proportion of that because Mm -hmm. lots of people who recover from eating disorders get to that very functional recovery where um they are their body is well Mm -hmm. and they are able to live without you know the high level of restrictions in their life um that they had beforehand but they still have a very like a, a very specific interest in health nutrition and it's kind of you know lots of people with anorexia divert, may recover their physical health but then kind of dip into this orthorexia if i have mm-hmm. to live in this body and i have to be this weight i want to make sure that everything's really really healthy mm-hmm. um and so you do get um a lot of people who are have had eating difficulties not necessarily diagnosable eating disorders who are more interested in nutrition as a result um and in order to when i was applying to be a dietitian i had to get my gp to sign me off to say that i was physically well um and psychologically well um and in the in the interview process for the university um that was also taken into account um not saying that if you've had an eating disorder you can't be a dietitian but i think it would be a, a misuse of um, knowledge and power if someone who was very ill was giving mm-hmm. people um, incorrect advice because they were in the throes of an illness and not able to um, support um, the evidence-based kind of advice. Um, so I know there's checks and balances within dietitians um, and likewise in the medical profession um, and I presume you know you're not going to be very good at your job <laughs> if you're just telling people just to have 500 calories a day and you can't get past that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I suppose you do get people who are naturally more interested in it and it can be really empowering for them to be able to be in a position where they can try new things, mm-hmm. um, you know, become have a different relationship with food learning about food is energy it's fuel it's for my body rather than food is some form of punishment mm-hmm. so it can be really empowering for a lot of people in their recovery yeah. um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because you might meet your the previous you 10 years down the line mm-hmm. and say i know how to help you move on from this i you know this is the path that i chose and it's not going to be correct for everyone but for a lot of people, it can be. 
So I, I have no qualms about mm-hmm. people who are dietitians, nutritionists or doctors who have a history of disordered eating and go into a nutrition-based mm-hmm. um, kind of career because that, that's a really broad statement, you know. It's mm-hmm. not, you mm-hmm. know, specifically giving everyone advice. Um, but if you are running up to people and taking away their chocolate bars and replacing <laughs> it with salad, then there's something probably not very right about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you do you do see a, um, a little bit more than perhaps the general population. I don't know if there's any research around that but that's just from doing the job I do and meeting the people that I meet that I I myself have that kind of personal reflection it's not the you know an official view of Mm -hmm. any governing body that I'm signed up to but it's just kind of what I've noticed when I'm out and about and um you know on social media and things like that yeah no absolutely thank you well, I'm honestly so, so thankful that you've taken the time to spend this hour with me talking through, so we're just under an hour, talking through all of these like amazing topics. And like you said at the start, mm-hmm. you know, we could dive into just one of them and spend an hour mm-hmm. talking just on one. So I appreciate yeah. that it's, it's hopefully given the listeners insight into um, areas such as ARFID that they've maybe never had an insight or knowledge on before. Mm-hmm. And also from the opportunity to hear from someone like yourself, a registered dietitian who specializes in this field, to be able to then have, you know, and again, I'm humbled that I've been able to ask you these questions one-on-one and have the answers. Um, And what I will do, I've made a note here as well to get the um, self-help, if we want to call it that, but the self-help area Uh pulled Uh together for everyone so that they can look at you know, if it's Amazon, other bookstores are available that they want to go to and get the books themselves. Uh-huh. If they want to go to a library or even if they have never been informed of Beat or, you know, CAMS before, then this is tangible things that they can take away from this episode to then uh-huh. be a bit proactive with getting to know more about. Yeah, absolutely. And in the future, if you want to do a bit more deeper dive into ARFID or something like that, yeah. I'm more than happy to do that. I honestly would absolutely love to do that. I'd love to take you up on that because it's something that yeah. I'm so, you know, I'm not knowledgeable on the detail of all of that, but I'm so invested and interested in it, not just from, you know, the, the kind of lifestyle mentoring and coaching side, but also as a mum myself. Um, uh-huh. It's something that, as you know, my girls were born nine weeks premature. They weighed a tiny £2.14 when they were born each. And it was just always, it felt like it was always my job as their mum to make sure that they had everything that they needed to have the best start in life. Uh But even with that approach, it doesn't mean that my girls may not develop disordered eating or eating disorders later in their Uh years. So, you know, it's not that I'm doing all of this as a preventative from the mum side, but certainly being aware of the language that I use as a mum, being aware of the varieties of foods that we have always introduced to the girls from a very, very young age has been that kind of thing that's kept me feeling like I'm doing a good enough job. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, so it's definitely something that I'm interested in. Um, I'm not fearful of it for my two because they definitely don't have ARFID. They're not fussy with their food. They, they can be terrors sometimes. Um, like you said, you know, some days they'll eat a big massive bowl of mussels with garlic butter sauce and other days they'll not be interested. So they're just children. It's their prerogative. But um, yes, I'm very, very thankful. I will now let you go. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> and say one more massive big thank you for spending all of your time today for the last hour no doing worries. this. And if there's lots of questions around ARFID that come out of this, maybe we can hook up in the new year in kind of January time and see what kind of feedback and questions you get and what we can look into a bit more detail if you want. Yeah, that would be absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. I do appreciate it. And also, I'm I'm now on Twitter. Oh, yay. Yes, so at Chatty Dietitian. (laughs) Sorry, say that again. 
at chatty dietitian at chatty dietitian i will put that into the um description section of the podcast episode so that people can click on it okay. and go straight through yeah. into your twitter and i'm feed. only on twitter because of all the requests after the mac yeah. today so I was like, oh, I'm going to have to do this now. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. You can find me. Uh, I don't know if I'm, I'm the, I think my title is The Chatty Dietitian and I'm at Chatty Dietitian. Okay, perfect. That I will make sense. sure I find you and yes. I'll, I'll pop it into this episode so that people can click on and follow what you've got to say. Because like I say, it's, it's very rare that we can get this type of, of really exceptional content that we can mm-hmm. ask the questions directly to someone like yourself. So thank you so much for taking the time. It's so appreciated. No, it's all right. It's good. I've enjoyed it. I'm just sat here with my snuggle blanket on. Just <laughs> I'm going to bed now. It's brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. Really nice chat to you. Thank Have you. Have a good Christmas, New Year. And yeah, we'll just set up a date in the New Year when we can like maybe do a bit more off it kind of stuff. Wonderful. I will speak to you soon. All right. See you later. Bye. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast session. It is a bit longer than what we normally do, but I think you'll completely agree that the topics we covered 